Hello, welcome to Coin Talk. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm about to be joined by uh, not my co-host, Jay Kang. He's on the road, unfortunately, but a great guest, his former New Yorker colleague, actually, uh, Nick Palmgarten, who just had a huge crypto feature in the New Yorker last week, uh, largely about Ethereum. Uh, we're brought to you in partnership with Medium. They've got 11, count them, 11 great featured long-form reads about crypto at Read dot medium dot com slash crypto let's hear that music this episode of coin talk was taped thursday october 18th at 2 p.m eastern standard time the bitcoin price index was six thousand five hundred and forty dollars welcome uh nick palmgarden hello aaron how you doing Okay, I want to ask you a question. You have a you have a um, a feature in the New Yorker this week about crypto. I think this is the first crypto feature the New Yorker has done. I could be wrong. There, there was a Bitcoin story some years ago. Yes, uh, in the days, but uh, this is the first one from this era, like from the um, uh, altcoin era in the New Yorker. Yeah, and it would seem uh, both it was overdue, probably for the New Yorker to do something, and it was overdue. For this thing to happen, like it took a lot longer and than it should have, basically. <laughs> so I would guess that normally, after you do this much research into a topic, you feel a bit like an expert or at least a like extremely knowledgeable layman. Like if you're getting this much of your life into a single topic, by the end of it, you're like, ah, I, I'm not a pro, but like I, I know a lot more than most people I'm talking to. I get the feeling after reading your crypto piece that you almost feel like you know less now than when you started. The, the ignorance that drips off the page. Is that what you're saying? Well, in some ways, it's a story about the unknowingness of crypto. Yeah. Um, like yeah. you have people making a bet at the end that's like yeah. essentially a bet that no one's even clear what the terms are on. It, it, it's one of right. these things that crypto kind of defies a lot of our like laws of understanding. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there's in in the story, there's a thing about, you know, a guy, a guy I know talks about, you know, on a scale of one to 10, where are you in terms of understanding? And, you know, Vitalik is a 9.2. And the guy who I was talking to was, I can't remember, 2.5 or something. Yeah. And, you know, around the office, I've been sort of bluffing and saying I'm a three. But, uh, you know, I don't really, I, I don't know that I know a lot more. I mean, I know a lot more about how things work, but I have, I'm, I'm, um, more agnostic than ever. And I, I feel, yeah, pretty clueless. I mean, it, I, it's not just shtick when people say, you know, so now you get it. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't really. Um, so I, you know, I was going to ask you what number you were. That was going to be my first question. Yeah. Cause I think I'm also a three. I'm also a two marauding as a three. I think I'm a two marauding as a three. Exactly. <laughs> Good. All right. We're I about, mean, we're about on the same level then. And then I'm, but then I know I'm lying because I mean I think you've been you've actually done a lot more of this than I have, and I've listened to you guys, and um, I can I can tell you about that whole experience. But oh, uh, you're a, you're a list, you're a coin talk listener. Oh my god! Well, here's the thing. I mean, I took this on a long time ago and was so clueless that I didn't even know when you guys started Coin Talk. I didn't know about it. Someone mentioned it to me. Like, of course you've been listening to Coin Talk. And I, I kind of said, yeah, of course. And then the fact that you guys were doing this and that I, I know who, knew who you were and I knew you were probably doing a great job. And it was, 
it was going to be just kind of really dispiriting to listen to. So I decided I wasn't going to listen to it for a while, that it was going to kind of get in the way of my thinking and make me feel bad. And then, uh, you know, and you don't want to feel bad. And so then, uh, then, then I decided I had to listen to all of them or at least listen to as many as possible. Yeah. So I was, yeah. I like it. I was driving around the summer going here and there and I just started just binging on them. And, 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 and what, what happened was I actually, they made me not feel bad. They made me feel good. Uh, like you guys, I love, I, I like the sort of cluelessness that you guys <laughs> bring to it. And, you know, I mean, the fact that you know a lot more than you say, but I just, I just kind of, I felt reassured that you guys who have, you know, are smart and had been doing this for a while also routinely threw up your hands, you know, and, and, and also called, called bullshit a lot. And so, uh, you made me feel better. Yeah. So but then I stopped listening. Cause it was just like, I can't, I can't keep doing this cause they're going to take everything that I'm going to say and they're going to do it. And then I'll won't have anything to say. Well, so. it's also hit a weird point in the last few months. I don't feel like you've missed a lot because when we started doing the show, crypto was like a rapidly evolving narrative where we would almost have to throw out an episode every couple of weeks cause they're already dated. Right. And then over the last three months, nothing has happened. Uh, the price is relatively static of Bitcoin. There's weird, like, um, like different ages in the crypto narrative where time starts going really fast and then starts going really slow, I believe. Yeah. And it was going very fast there in a way that was sort of dizzying. And then, yeah, now it's just this sort of, you know, argument stuck in the mud about this or that, you know, this, you know, whether it's Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash or wither Ethereum or, you know, you know, just whatever the big debates are that happen on Twitter constantly, they're just kind of stuck in this loop and, uh, you know, it gets a little dull. So you spend all this time doing it. I'm assuming you've had a few like really, really hot showers since you finished. Um, looking (laughs) back over this time period that you really like got very up close and personal with the, the, uh, the crypto narrative. Um, what was like the biggest surprise for you? from when you started that story to, to when you published it? You know, how, how impenetrable it was, you know? I mean, I, I, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but, you know, the, the New Yorker sort of proposition or, or compact in some ways, or at least traditionally has been this, is, you know, moderately intelligent, but mostly clueless generalist encounters, you know, fully formed complex subculture and, you know, unexplored area of expertise and then explains and animates it, you know, for the benefit of the general reading public. And I thought, you know, this thing is going to be harder for me than usual. I'm, I'm a technophobe. I'm, I'm old. You know, I still like carry around crumpled ones in my pocket. You know, I still like I still blanch when I have to pay for a cab with a credit card, you know. But I thought this would be a challenge. It'd be cool. I'd learn something new about the world, but I'll get my hands around it and I'll be able to you know, play with it. But I just never really, I never really was able to get my arms around it completely or even get inside of it, you know? So, I mean, should that be a surprise? I don't know. I mean, that became the thing I wrote too much about. I wrote like 20,000 words, <laughs> like 10,000 of it was just like, I can't understand this. I can't understand this. Or this is hard to understand. And uh, Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm really interested in this because you use the phrase play with it. And, um, Myself and my co-host, who is your uh, former New Yorker colleague, yeah. I should say, yeah. Jay Kang, uh, who yeah. is actually on a reporting trip right now, uh, which is yeah. why I uh, why he's not uh, on the line. Right. But um, 
we when we started the show, we really strongly believed in the idea of actually buying crypto, trading coins, basically doing all the stuff that people do in crypto rather than um, people who sort of are more on the journalistic uh, critical side. And right. I'm guessing you're not allowed to do that kind of stuff as a New Yorker staffer. I don't know exactly what the ethics policies are, but are you a no-coiner? I'm a no-coiner. I mean, partly, you know, I've, I've told, persuaded myself it's journalistic ethics. It's probably just, you know, fear of technology. <laughs> <laughs> it's lameness masquerading as, as virtue, you know. Yeah. Usual. But was that difficult for you in, in writing this story when you're saying sort of take out the technology and play with it? To play with Bitcoin or yeah. Ethereum, particularly Ethereum, actually, Ethereum is like a game and it requires the like Ethereum uh, quarter put in the arcade game before it turns on. Oh, I mean, yeah, obviously that when I when I say play, I mean, play with with, with ideas <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, the, the, yeah. some of the cultural notions. But, yeah, obviously, uh, you know, I've 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 watched people play. You know, I've watched people work with it, and I've I've seen it done. You know, but yeah. uh, it ain't the same. And it was, you know, I decided that that was that was. I think I mean, I think I even remember you guys in one of your podcasts. One of the first ones I listened to, you were sort of calling attention to it as a as a genre. You know, like a journalist buys some Bitcoin and and writes about it. You know, and it was it, so I I sort of made the decision that that was sort of a tired thing to do. You know. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that makes sense. And yet it leaves you with this very limited set of angles to enter the story. Like, I've, yeah. one of the reasons I assume that this story has more words about Ethereum than Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin has a larger market cap and has existed longer, is that there are people behind ethereum that you can talk to who can t uh, talk about its origin myth and where it's going and who has the most of it bitcoin is almost this in impenetrable narrative now where we have an anonymous founder and as far as i know most of the bitcoin core team doesn't talk to journalists at least regularly yeah i mean why ethereum i think ethereum at the time was i mean when i first heard about it, it was sort of newish you know it was something that not everybody knew about then and, and, you know the the sort of big price run up and everything suddenly it was everywhere but at least for the you know for a general interest person they might not have heard of it so that was one thing yeah another was that there was uh there was a way into it you know there were there were people and there were people that i that i could find and then vitalik just was always interesting to me you know um uh and bitcoin you know had been around that's that's basically the justification for the focus on Ethereum. But, you know, at a certain point, you just choose this thing and that's what you're doing, you know, and you have to just do the thing that you've chosen to do. What was it like meeting these major Ethereum figures? Like after hearing all of the rhetoric, like I mostly plugged in to Ethereum at the like level of a shit poster on Reddit, um, <laughs> either yeah. criticizing or pumping Ethereum. That's pretty much where I'm plugged into all of this stuff. But uh, Ethereum has this kind of, gods on earth class of people who were both early believers are fabulously wealthy and almost like called like a full court shot that they hit to the point now where it's like hard to not sort of believe their utopian rhetoric. Right. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure I would feel about that. I mean, around <laughs> then I felt kind of just like a doofus, you know, I mean, that was the sort of, it, but different, 
different people made me feel differently. Uh, Vitalik, Vitalik has this, this weird way of, of, uh, being very present. And, uh, I, I can see why people make such a big deal out of his presence. Cause there's something about him that, that makes you, makes you feel fully engaged with him and, and his mind. You get this weird generosity of spirit from him, even though he's, he's kind of has a robotic manner. I think I wrote about that. So that was interesting. Just the kind of the weird glow that he gave off. I have friends who, who, um, go to like a, a yoga retreat, uh, in upstate New York. And the guy who leads it is always saying, I am not a guru. Like, I am not like a prophet. I don't know why people keep saying that about me, which is exactly like what a guru says. And it's what, it's what Vitalik says is like, oh, I'm trying to move away from this. It's a problem that I'm such a cult of personality. But isn't that exactly what we'd expect from a, a person who is building a cult of personality is to sort of deny it? Of course, that that the ta- humility is tactic. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. You know, I don't know how 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 much guile there is in, in his way of dealing. I I can't tell. I didn't suss it out. You know. We had a uh, another another reporter, uh, Gideon Lewis Krauss, on the yeah. show. I don't know if you heard that episode, but I did. And that that was another piece where you know I I know Gideon and think his work is awesome. And that piece came out, and I've been talking to those guys. And that just kind of gave me the willies and I had to not read it for a long time. And I finally read it, read it and said, this is great. And now, you know, so it's similar to your show. And then I remember listening to him on your show and it was just like, a, it was like a, you know, the, the um, it was just too much. Well, there was, there was one thing that's really stuck with me from that conversation that I, that I also thought about when I was reading your New Yorker piece, which was, we tend to like the, to um, divide the world into scams and, noble things and that like everything is one or the other everything's either like a real good idea or it's a uh, a a very thinly disguised scam and crypto presents this third kind of a thing which is something that people deeply deeply believe in but could still end up going down in just as disastrous flames uh, as a scam. You know, I think about Ethereum, like the way that people are talking about it at the consensus office in your story. And then I think about people who are like manipulating Ethereum markets in Korea. And like, they're all part of the same story. Like it I, is this duality all at once. Yeah, it's impossible. I mean, you, you'd, you'd be a fool to, to try to say it's one or the other completely. Uh, it's, it's, it's all of them, right? I mean, the whole space is full of scams. It's, I mean, and you could suss out a hundred of those scams and it would be, it would be good storytelling. I'm surprised Michael Lewis hasn't done that. You know, <laughs> I, I kept waiting for him to, to kick ass on this story and I'm sort of glad his attention was elsewhere. I feel <laughs> like maybe he looked at it and was like, ah, too hard. Like yeah. this one's like, I'm just going to take an L on this one because there is something about crypto that even like, your experience is not uncommon. Every writer I know who's not from crypto, who's taken on a crypto feature, has ended it like, oh, never again. Yeah. There's something inherently that I think frustrates how we generally go about journalism, which I think is you want the journalist to do something where you end up knowing more than you started. And often like a crypto explainer leaves you more confused than you started. So like while you've been working on this, are you like the New Yorker office Bitcoin explainer now? Are you like the person like everyone else is coming to? Like, I don't get it. Tell me how this works, Nick. 
no, I'm the guy, I'm the hangdog guy. He says, what, Ruth Day. And, you know, everyone says, oh, I can't wait to have you explain this to me. And I say, I don't think it's going to work out that way. Yeah. Um, And I I still don't know. I mean, maybe people give me thin smiles of, you know, congratulations, you survived. I don't think that they understand it any better. I, I, you know, I think the piece like this kind of works for, it doesn't work for people that really know, know their way around it. It's not, it's too simple and boring and familiar. And then for people that don't know anything, it's just way too dense and crazy. Uh, maybe there's some there's some middle category where people can say, you know, it was interesting to read about this in, in sort of plain English. You know, that's sort of what I'm aiming for. <laughs> well, I'm happy you did the story just because it captures a very specific moment in Ethereum's history that's going to yeah. we're never going to come exactly back to, which is there is an increasing pressure for this technology that's taken massive and massive infusion of capital to deliver anything uh, back on that. Like you have a moment in your story that's fantastic where Joe Lubin, who I believe is the largest individual holder of Ethereum or is alleged to be the largest uh, individual holder. That's hard to know. Yeah. Hard to know. That's a real like a fact checking conundrum. Also like how much Ethereum does Joe Lubin have? Good luck. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So we we, we figured it all out. Got to the bottom of it. Okay. Good, good, good. Um, So, there's this moment where it has to deliver on all of these things. And that moment is like sometime right after the end of the story up till some period of years, at which point we're going to go, wow, like that Ethereum story was kind of bogus, you know, like that, that they were telling, um, they failed. If you were going to do a follow-up to this story, which I understand that you probably have no interest in doing, but if you were, like, when, yeah. how long would you wait to, to check back in with with that bet? Oh, yeah. So what is, what is the metabolism rate of this whole thing? Yeah. I, what's the half-life you know, of Ethereum? Yeah. we got. I mean, I think we'd, we'd give it a couple of years. Right? Yeah. At least. I mean, I, they haven't... They, they don't have much to show for it. I mean, they trot out, you know, Civil, for example... Which is about to fail right now, or maybe already has failed. I think the, the token sale was not working well. You yeah, know, I haven't checked in on the last couple of days, but uh, I think they're saying they're going to refund everyone's money and then they're going to try some simplified token sale. But yeah. for all of the other, you know, absolute shit coins out there, the fact that Civil, which was at least a good faith project, can't raise the money, it, it doesn't seem like a good sign. Yeah, and Sybil's like one of the only ones where I'm, I'm, I'm I kind of find myself saying bummer, you know? Cause I, yeah, me too. I kind of like, I like the idea, and you know, Lord knows this industry could use a new way of doing things. So I, I was kind of rooting for it. So my usual cynicism and you know, Schadenfreude for all this stuff was sort of suspended for Sybil. And uh, mine was too, but I was also wanted to warn them that journalists are going to take you more serious, are going to look into this more seriously. Than if you suggest banana coin and right. therefore it's got to be a lot tighter and more sound, uh, right. than your, um, you know, dental tokenization scheme. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, who, who knows? Maybe it, it, I don't, I really don't know it. Maybe it's all too early. Maybe in five years, the stuff will just blossom and take over the world. Or maybe in five years, it'll be nothing. I really, I just don't, I don't know. The one reason that I thought when I read your article that you might be a coin talk listener was that when you listed bogus shitcoin um, projects, they were two of my favorite bogus shitcoin projects, Banana Coin and Dentacoin. I was like, 
either either Nick has really similar taste in these projects to I do, or or maybe he's heard me talking about Banana Coin on the show, which is still, I think, the greatest like outlandish coin scheme out there. I mean, I I had been keeping a running list of shit coins for a while, and uh, by the time I finally broke down and listened, you know, I, I did know about those, but. I think there was something about the way that you, whenever you say the word banana, <laughs> it's like the way the way your voice works and, and the word banana coin work that is really kind of bringing it on home. Well, now, yeah. now that I know that you're a listener, I'm a, I'm a little bit bummed out that Sumo Coin didn't make it into the article because I've been pushing Sumo Coin hard for I, almost a year now. I know. I, yeah, yeah. I, sh- I should have because it, it would have gone well with Koi Coin, maybe. Well, Sumo Coin would have been a, a hard one to talk about because it turned out that the five developers were actually all one person with a different right. nationality. So right. it's almost like you need like a like a separate talk of the town to really get into the Sumo Coin mythology. Well, I think, you know, I think we should have, you know, we should have a weekly, you know, a weekly crypto column. But yeah. I don't know who would ever take that on. I feel like like a joke today, possible real feature in several years. You know that that's the weird thing about crypto is like any any joke we could make right now, like more or less, could be true in a few years. Well, that's I mean the thing about you know in my story, I I, I have this sort of silly, weird, sideways lead about seeing the ducks feed the koi fish in a koi pond and in a hotel koi pond, and uh, I sort of imagine this this thing called koi coin. And then, like at eleven o'clock on the night we were closing, we were basically closed the piece. You know, the fact checker writes me to say there actually is a koi coin. You know, so this thing that we just sort of imagined again as a joke was was actually a thing. So uh, every coin that we've I've thought about doing as any kind of a joke stunt anything, there's already been a coin that like is sitting in that exact nexus already. There's a podcasting coin. Don't make, can't make that joke. There is Podcoin already. It is yeah. a like weird micro tipping scheme for podcasts. Can I ask you a little bit more about um, the the sort of like big Ethereum? Because you're the actually, I think the only person I've ever met who has had like one to one interactions with the people in this world. Um, yeah. So Joe Lubin, who is allegedly the largest holder of Ethereum, uh, runs Consensus. As you said, it's out in this uh, Bushwick warehouse uh, that feels a little bit like a movie set. And um, you ask him, basically, like, are you doing all this stuff to pump value into your massive Ethereum investment? Like, basically starting a massive set of incubators and international uh, Ethereum project DApp investments. And he goes, no, that's absurd. Why is that absurd? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's absurd. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't really, because I'm not a person who knows how to make money. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to question the way yeah. other people make money really effectively. But, uh, you know, I mean, his argument, which, you know, I, at, at the moment I found credible was that this was, this would be a ridiculous way to go about making money. To, you know, I think he, he refers to like, let me create an infrastructure to give value to my magic money holdings. Right. They said, yeah, that does seem kind of a roundabout way to make money when, you know, you've had a, in Joe's case, you know, he's had a hedge fund. He figured out how to, how to trade currencies and make money off of that. 
using software and whatnot. So I, you know, at, at that moment when he said that, I said, yeah, I, I get that. But yeah, sure, people do sometimes think of consensus as this sort of massive pump operation. Right? Well, I don't think of it as a pump or in a, in a negative way. I just look at it as like, for these Ethereum guys, for their bet to earn out, not just financially, but in terms of their own like utopian vision and sort of view of their own product, it has to work. So if you yeah. had a billion dollars and the number one thing that you were hoping would happen in, in, in human history was this Ethereum supercomputer coming to, uh, in some ways, function, eh, putting a bunch of your money into like incubating people trying to do projects for it, it just doesn't seem that like strange to me. And it's also yeah. not like he can just dump all of his Ethereum, as I understand it. It's too much Ethereum. Ethereum would plummet even further in value if any of these mega, mega whales like him were to divest themselves uh, of their Ethereum. Not to mention it would sort of go against this whole proof-of-stake ideology where it's like, you know, the, the people who have the most skin in the game are going to control uh, Ethereum mining, or they don't call it mining, whatever they call it. Right. Well, obviously, for Ethereum to work, for Ethereum to become Ethereum and for it to be the thing that they say it's going to be, people have to use it. And so they have to get people to use it. And to get people to use it, they have to find ways to use it. And, you know, that's why he that's why those people sit down for an interview with The New Yorker, I, I assume, is because they want regular people to think, oh, here's this thing that we might be able to use. Whether, whether you know, regular people will be able to use it or can use it now is another question, but that, that's obviously what they need. They need people to adopt it, you know? I thought that when I started doing this show, I'd be learning a lot about, like, blockchain technical stuff. And what I feel like I've actually learned a lot more about is financial systems and, like, political ideologies. Like, I did not realize that this would be, like, how I eventually learned about the gold standard or uh, how international banking transfers works. And it almost seems like, particularly with regards to Ethereum, this sort of open source software as a religion idea almost feels like a, a new political idea as well as a startup. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that, you know, crypto or Ethereum or any of it is a critique of the system, you know, and is an attempt at, the, at a solution, you know, that's when it gets kind of fascinating. The actual tech is, is too too esoteric for me, but um, I, I kind of nerded out on this on the governance thing. I mean, I never thought I'd, that's like, it's a horrible word, governance, right? I mean, but uh, I, I, I started seeing the way, the arguments that were going on about how to, how to run one of these so-called communities and who would be in charge and how they would apportion power, decision-making sway and, uh, it started to look, you know, like a lot of, you know, a new ways of ordering human power and self-interest. I thought that was that's kind of cool, but it's 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 not that interesting ultimately to write about at length for general interest people. I think that's the most interesting thing, also secretly, yeah. is yeah. Um, we've gotten a bunch of libertarian techno utopianists, right. and we've got them all in one place, and all all we all they really need to do is basically agree on things, like build the things and agree. And you'd think, oh, these people should get along. They uh, have similar political motivations, similar ideologies, and almost instantly, whether it's the story of Ethereum 
or Tezos or any of these, like the real world invades the utopian uh, libertarian ideal in like a week and a half, you know, like immediately it becomes politics. Immediately it becomes who's getting pushed out, who's becoming the leader. I feel like we're almost doing like model UN, but for like libertarian utopianism. I, I mean, it collapses right into a community board meeting or something or, yeah. or, or, you know, that scene in uh, Lawrence of Arabia where after the, you know, the fall, I think it's the fall of Damascus. They're all, you know, all the tribes are sitting around in one big fallen hall and they're all arguing and, and, and fighting. You know, it's it, it instantly as soon as they've got what they want, it, it degenerates into, into, you know, infighting. The thing that like Ethereum reminds me the most of are my experiences in the Park Slope food co-op, yeah, like yeah. board meetings where everyone is allowed to talk, yeah. you know, and it's four hours long. I mean, that's the problem with open source and also, you know, a, the thing that's basically being run on social media, you know, like where it's all on Twitter and Reddit. It's just, you know, one long argument. It gets, I, I, it's, it's kind of tiresome, but um, I guess it's better than the alternative. I don't know. I mean, they are, they are trying to figure out the same problems that everyone's been trying to figure out for yeah. all of human history. And yeah. I sort of applaud people for bringing in new ideas, and yet I also giggle at them for assuming that all of the old problems won't come up. I mean, that's like something I think about the scams, too. Like, all the scams in crypto are like 1800 scams just right. applied to crypto. There aren't a ton of, like, brand new ideas out there. Yeah, I mean, they're just going to keep being human, you know, whether they're doing it this way or that way. And we, we can't escape it. You know, we're, we're, we're tribal, we're tribal apes, you know, whether we're doing it on computers or, you know, in, in the capital or out on the, out on the uh, Savannah, you know, you wrote a couple years ago about another niche group that I have a pretty good amount of actually more affection for because my father was a member of it. Uh, the deadheads, and the uh, <laughs> right. culture that has grown up around the Grateful Dead. And it actually struck me that these might be the two most similar stories in your um, New Yorker catalog, and that their topics almost so sprawling that they don't even really fit into a 20,000-word story. But uh, how does writing about a subculture like the Grateful Dead compare to writing about, say, Ethereum fanatics? Well, with the Grateful Dead, I, I knew the language, you know? I, I, knew, yeah. my, I knew my way around it. Yeah, you didn't have to look up like what a tape trader meant. Right. I, I knew I, I actually knew way more than I should. And so in some ways, that was one of those personal essay, you know, get your private fascination off your chest and convert it into word dollars uh, experiment. But uh, but yeah, that was more labor love. A guy writing about from within his own subculture about something that is strange, the outside world and trying to make it palatable to people in the outside world, especially those who are already predisposed to hate it, you know, like, like people that hate the dead or hate deadheads, which there are a lot of them. And most of them are reasonable in their assessments. But, it, you know, with this one, it was me going as a clueless person into a, a foreign, you know, a foreign country and, and with lots of strange place names and, and a language I didn't understand. But it, they, the arguments and the sort of obsession and the, and the, and the, and the sort of the, the belief that this is the one true path they both have that in common, you know? Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Well, I remember from my own youth, um, going to a lot of dead shows. And when you see the complexity of like the organization that, that was built up around the dead, 
There's the parking lot. There's the like people selling stuff in the parking lot. There's like it's so much more than a concert. And it's an economy and it's also like a culture and it has its good apples and its bad apples and it's people who want to be in charge and people who really don't want to be in charge like Jerry Garcia, but become the sort of vitalics of it. And it, it strikes me that if you tried to make the Grateful Dead concert, like from scratch, it would never work. It had to spontaneously become that unique cultural phenomenon. And Ethereum has like a, some, some similarity to that. Like Ethereum's kind of just saying like, Hey, it's a campground. Like we're just going to create the tokens that people can trade and there's going to be a rich culture that, that springs up around it. The tricky part is, it seems like to me, that they've created that campground and not many people are showing up for the show. It's like the, the opposite problem. I remember like watching that Grateful Dead documentary. It was always like, we don't actually have enough room for all the people who want this experience. Ethereum's got all the money in the world, but they don't really seem to be attracting the crowds. Yeah, or maybe it's that the crowd is there and, and, the, and the, the band's not going to show up. <laughs> I like exactly. that. I like that explanation. I mean, they're all there saying, yeah, we're here. We, you know, and then nothing happens. Yeah. Then like a guy gets on the stage and plays like half a song on a harmonica and yeah. walks off and, and then the, the PA cuts out and he walks off and people are like, all right, that's it for next year. We'll see you next. We'll see you in a couple right. years. Uh, right. you, next time there's going to be a, a, a great band here, you know? And then the fans still say it's great because that's the way it was. Yeah. And maybe that's true in the Ethereum community. We could just we could just stretch this analogy to its very thinnest. I mean, I'm I'm definitely <laughs> gonna try to use a Grateful Dead metaphor in the title of this episode. I, I'm not sure which song it's gonna refer to. Probably Ripple, but uh Yeah. So like now that you've got a little bit of distance here, are you gonna keep following the crypto narrative or is this is was this enough for you? Yeah, I don't know. I, I I feel it pulling me back in. I've I've certainly since I wrote that, I, I, my inbox is is clogged with uh, pitches from from publicists, and those 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 kind of scare me. I don't want anything to do with that. But but I'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done I've done a few stories about things where when when I finished with them, I said never again, basta. And this is one of those. But if it's if it's if it's actually going to be here to stay, then I then I, I might have no choice, right? I mean, those publicists are not going to stop contacting you. I can tell you that. There's yeah. no way to get off that list once you're on it. Like, you almost might as well become a crypto expert because once you're on the mailing list, you're going to get treated that way anyway. You're probably going to get like asked to like appear at weird crypto conferences now, too. Like, the whole thing has kind of a weird thought virus thing where you start off thinking it's dumb. And then you end up like living half your life going to crypto conferences, which does seem to be like where most people who get really into this stuff go. They're people who basically live at conferences. I've noticed that. I don't know how that works. Like, how does it work financially? Like, are they, they, are they all just couch surfing or are people saying? I think they were all early in Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think if I were to describe like what really is unique about this narrative there's tons of weird niche subcultures in America who've had utopian ideals and big plans. This is maybe the first one that got a massive, massive cash infusion, not yeah. just for the people who are at the business level, but also just the individual hobbyist level. 
like everyone got rich. Everyone got to a point where they could quit their job and go full time on this, go full conference on this. And that makes them really unlike the regular people that they're like trying to get to come to the Ethereum Grateful Dead show. Right, right. I mean, it's it's not like the dot com thing where people still had to be in offices with whiteboards and, and, and pretend to be building businesses. And this is just like we could just talk, you know, eat, eat special food and, and, and drink fancy beer and talk and travel and talk some more. Yeah. Well, additionally, I feel like some of the problems that they're describing, whether it's like exchanges or like being able to make bets on Augur, are these problems that you have if you're like a person who like is making big public bets a lot and that kind of thing, but they're not necessarily mapped to what non-crypto people are, are doing with their time. Like it, it reminds me about of the Silicon Valley disconnect from the rest of America, but it's a different kind of a disconnect that's much less geographical. Um, and it's just sort of this, uh, uh moving feast of, of conference to conference. Yeah, adding layer upon layer of stuff to stuff that already seems obscure and then stuff that we don't think we need. I mean, it, there's, there's definitely the solution in search of a, a problem thing going on, right? Yeah. What did you, like, w- when you were doing sure. research for this story, um, did you go back and look at any of these pre-Bitcoin movements, like the hash cash and, and whatever, like going back to some of the 90s software moments what does the past tell us about this story, I guess, would be the question. Well, I, my understanding there is that the, the technology didn't, they hadn't solved certain problems. But I, you know, I, I kind of, I, I like, I like the idea of the, the, the original, the pioneers sort of trying to get it right, but not quite getting it right. And they were all true believers and, but they, you know, they, they never got there. And then now they have gotten there and those people are either resentful or excited. I, I, I don't know whether this is a progression or if this is just an, uh, an aberration. I got one more question and then I'll, uh, I'll let you go. Yeah. So, so someone asked me the other day, isn't this energy consumption thing like a, a, a big problem? And, uh, you know, I kind of gave my like traditional rap on the show where I'm like, well, actually like there's more power on the earth than this. And people just need to find the cheap power. I don't even know if I actually believe that. It yeah. was more like you're presenting the like deep no coiner perspective. So let me give you the coiner perspective. Right. I'm actually a crypto moderate in the middle. Uh-huh. And I feel like journalism has a lot of trouble with that idea, that dialectic idea that's so deeply ingrained into crypto. It's like, it's like, well, it's like, um, whether, like, well, it's gotta be Marxism or capitalism. You know, I can't, I can't process anything between, uh, those two things how do you deal with that in your writing? But also like, were you having opinions while you were writing this piece? Like as you sort of became familiar with the coiner worldview, and I'm guessing you were also probably pr- pretty familiar with the no coiner view. If you just read the New York times, you can get a pretty good overview of the like major no coining concerns out there. Well, you know, the, the problem is it's, it's hard to know what to believe. Right. I mean, yep. I, you know, you, I, you read and you're told that it's, it's, it's burning this much energy and you're also told, well, that's just excess energy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't understand the power grid very well. Do you? I mean, I, no. it, 
So I, I, uh, you know, and, and I, I probably, there's, there's probably a a part of my job that would require that I completely understand the power grid before I even write a sentence about it. Uh, but I didn't do that. So I, and I feel like in the piece, I don't actually mention the other point of view, the excess power point of view. And I've been called out for that already. And I regret that, you know, like, so when there's, when you're doing the dialectic thing, you know, the, you're either Marxist or, or capitalist. Anytime you don't do both, you know, you open yourself up and sometimes you're making a choice not to do one. You're saying this is the way I look at it. Tough. If there's another point of view, I don't care. Or sometimes you're just you're just moving the thing forward and not getting getting caught in the weeds. You know, when you're writing about it, you can't present everything all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Or at least not unless this like article is going to be like 300,000 words. Like, I think if you actually tried to cover everything, you would turn into, uh, what was that guy that Joseph Mitchell was profiling? Uh, Professor Siegel, who was like writing his like 10,000 page history of the world that never got finished. Like that's what happened would happen if you tried to cover every angle of crypto thought, I think. And if you had to explain how everything worked, it, it just it just would get it gets bogged down. So you have to you make all these decisions to cut things. It's what you do whenever you tell any story. But in this story, you had to do that, especially. And so you're leaving out so much that then it, it comes across, the, you know, some of the some of the corners you cut come across as like as political decisions. You know, I, I believe this version versus that version. Right. Uh, and some of that is is inadvertent and some of it is on purpose. I'm not going to go through it. And, Tell you which, <laughs> not even sure which is which. So, which do you really think is better, Bitcoin or Ethereum? No, I've, I won't. I won't ask yeah. you that. What would I do if I were going to invest? Yeah. What would you? What would you? What would you? Uh, did you? Did any of the other ones excite you? I'll ask you that. Beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum, did anything else catch your eye in uh, in altcoin land? I had I had a whole I had a whole thing. You know, a lot of this, you know, where I saw Vitalik and where the piece begins and all that is at the. Uh, Zcash conference, Zcon up in Montreal, yeah. and I spent a little time with Zuko Wilcox and and some of the Zcash people, and the, the whole privacy sort of cypherpunk thing, you know that 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 kind of that kind of got me going, you know, and I actually wrote a lot about that and ended up having to cut it because you had to cut something. I mean, I have no idea whether it's a good investment or if it's going to work. I mean, you know, uh, but I I just kind of like the idea. Of, of Zcash. Me too. I think there's, uh, if there's a third thing that interests me, if, if the first thing was internet money and the second thing was programmable money, uh, anonymous money feels like a third significantly uh, enough differentiated idea that you've at least got my attention. I was at this privacy, you know, privacy seminar and all these hackers were talking and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand a word. Uh, and I knew some of them are sort of famous uh but uh at that moment while i was standing there the the news came over my phone that um that justice kennedy was retiring right and it just just seemed like this sort of potentially dark moment in world history and who knew who knew where the world would go and i kind of looked for a brief moment i looked at those people those hackers sitting there talking about privacy and like how, how to do it and onion layers and all that stuff um i kind of looked at them like you know, some kind of heroes like you know characters in the matrix or something and that, that you know so that that kind of got me going um well uh thank you so much nick uh i am a huge fan of your writing uh, i i do hope that you come back to crypto eventually me and you can uh we can do this interview again in the like 
dystopian scorched Bitcoin uh, wasteland that uh, is inevitably coming. When, and and we'll be rich. And and we'll and we'll be rich for our just for just for our early uh, contributions to uh, crypto media. Just to be a two will be enough. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what's the name of the story so people can find it? It's uh, profits. Oh. Oh, the, the headline in the, in the magazine is different, though. Um, yeah, it's got two different titles. So what the the online title is something about the profits of boom and bust. Profits of boom and bust. I think right. The the magazine. Title. It's the stuff that dreams are made of. Uh, okay. So if you're looking on the internet, you Google profits of cryptocurrencies, survey the boom and bust, or just look in the show notes. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, Aaron. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Thursday, October 18th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $6,540. Thanks to Nick. Thanks to our editor, James Nicholson. Thanks to my co-host, Jay Kang. Thank you to all of our friends over at Medium. You can find every episode at medium.com slash cointalk. You can also send us an email, hi at cointalk.show. We'll see you soon.